and welcome to The Wood Podcast, where we explore the solutions to the world's most critical energy challenges. I'm your host, Victoria Kyo. The International Energy Agency released a report in 2021 outlining the critical role minerals will play in the energy transition. The report highlighted the startling mismatch between the world's climate ambitions and the availability of critical metals and minerals needed to realise a clean energy economy. This is the second of two episodes exploring the future of mining, the key challenges the sector is facing, how it can become greener, and how mining will ultimately decarbonize the world. On our global panel today, I'm joined by Mike Wolaschuk, Wood's global technical leader for mineral processing, Julian Sparks, our mining strategy lead, and David Blaker, Wood's mining sector leader for environment and infrastructure. Thank you all for joining me today. Green mining is attracting more attention as we seek ways to make the mining industry more sustainable. But what is the best strategy for making green mining a reality? Mike, I'll throw that question to you first. I think it starts with some standardized reporting and some scorecards um, so that you know we can understand uh, some consistency in, in metrics and measurement. So um, I think stakeholders are demanding some transparency, you know, from the investors uh, and other stakeholders, the locals. Um, and I think, you know, once you have a standardized reporting system with some transparency, uh, then you can look at, you know, tying those ESG metrics to things like financing, regulatory approvals. Um, so, so I think that's that's really where we have to get to. The problem with that, Mike, is every mine is different. So, I mean, if you're looking to a copper mine in, in Chile or you're looking at um, a nickel mine in, in northern Canada or you're looking at even Uzbekistan, every sort of factor in the, that ESG is different. So the, it's going to be really it, difficult you know, to make it, the- it, it differs by commodity, Julian, but so do cash costs, right? Um, you know, a cash cost metric for a copper mine is different than what it is for gold, but we still look at, uh, you know, total cash costs and, and all in sustaining cash costs. And so there's some consistency in how we measure financial performance. And I think we need similar consistency in how we measure ESG performance. So you're talking water, you're talking local governance, you're talking the community, you're talking CO2, uh, and you've got all of these factors where you know, water in Chile will be critical, but in Canada, not so much. If uh, you know, there is no water scarcity, but there, the communities are going to, you know, they're going to not want the mine in the area. So it's, it, everything, you're going to need to find a balanced approach. Speaking of balance, David, let's get your take on this hot topic. Yeah, I think with, you know, if, if you use ESG as a really broad one and you try to do it for every component of ESG, it's going to get really hard. We do have some guidelines on what are the best approaches to ESG, you know, community engagement, et cetera. And then I think some of the things like water might be left best to local jurisdictions. But when you look at something like carbon, carbon is a global problem, right? The planet doesn't care much whether that ton of carbon dioxide comes out of Chile or Canada or the US or the UK or Russia. It's a it's a ton of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that, that contributes to global warming. So the thing we have going with for us on the carbon is that if, if we can come up with one common accounting set, we know that everywhere lower is better and everybody should 
you know, everybody is kind of feeling the same pain to a certain extent in terms of trying to lower carbon dioxide. The difference is that some areas are more hit by, you know, by climate change, are a little bit more motivated to drive it. But we, we need that common global accounting system for, for carbon, um, you know, and, and however we do it, because, you know, I think you've got the European Union at least looking at, you know, border adjustments uh, for carbon to kind of equalize for the jurisdictions that don't have a carbon tax. Um, so, so we we do need to sort of get to this common measurement for for carbon, so we can all understand exactly what it is we're doing. We got to know where we are, and then we we really need, and that's what we need to do in order to be able to focus on where to make the improvements, right? I, I think that's a good point, David, uh, around carbon. But I think you know we can talk similar concepts around water, uh, and although there's regional differences, you know, in the Atacama Desert versus somewhere in uh, in Indonesia where you know you're in a, you're in a rainforest does that mean that we still shouldn't be uh, valuing water consumption the same between those two jurisdictions in, in other words uh, does it allow us to be more wasteful of, of uh, fresh water sources in places where it's more abundant or should we expect that the same type of um, governance around water usage should apply um, I think that that's a question. Aside from the need to establish some sort of sustainability scoring system, what other solutions are we already deploying to modernize mining and make it more sustainable? If you really are talking about it, it's not really a new technology, but the use of solar and, and photovoltaic panels is something that it's really sort of it's becoming mainstream if you look at countries like chile they're, they're really filling up and building these fields everywhere which is allowing miners to buy green power from the grid same with canada in terms of the the hydroelectric that gives them a lot of green power but you're also seeing a lot of miners in countries where the the, the power supply is not so stable moving to their own um, installations of uh, of uh, solar power, or in in locations that are remote, and it looks there is not much interest from third parties to supply to them. And you that you're going to see that increase. And this is uh, if you're looking at the number one sort of scope two for any operation where you have to grind rock. It it's you know, where are you getting your electricity from is your number one question. And if you can get that electricity from from PV, uh, then that's great. And we're, you know, we're seeing a, a significant increase, not only in project requests, but also our, well, our own services in terms of designing these sorts of solutions. To It's a really, it's a low hanging fruit um, in terms of decarbonizing and uh, greening your, uh, your mine asset. And you could even go, you know, go all the way to carbon capture, which uh, you know, if you look at the, Look at steel, which is uh, to make steel, you need to burn coal. It's um, it's part of the process as you remove that, the oxygen from the Fe atoms. Uh, and coal can be used, but what happens if in that process you catch all the CO2 produced and you sequester it? You know, that That is a clear solution that would save a whole lot of smelters out there in the world uh, and reduce their carbon footprint significantly. Like I said before, you know, 79 or 80% of BHP's scope three 
is from making steel. So if you can get that carbon out of the air, it's a big step forward. I think there's a lot going on, you know, so you, you can look at, you know, we, we've talked to companies about electrifying their railways. I, I think a lot of people don't realize how vertically integrated mining companies can be right from, you know, mine to, to the railway to, to, you know, shipping it to the port, to operating the port, to operating the ships, to operating the, the power facilities that, that power all of that. And so, you know, we, we talk to companies that look at, you know, electrifying their railways. They look at, uh, you know, the next round of courier, carrier um, or carriers um, will likely be LNG powered at, at as an interim as an interim step maybe to hydrogen or something else they're looking at bubbles on the ore carriers in order to reduce friction i think there's even one company that's looking at putting rotary sails on their ore carriers the big cylinders that kind of spin on the top of the ship and use bernoulli to uh, to assist with with moving things through and, and you know we've, we've got all of that sort of stuff going on and, and and then you look for the step change kind of you know, kind of like fracking did to oil and gas. We were we were almost out of oil. They were talking peak oil, and then we get fracking, and the price drops by eighty percent. And I think I think the battery technology ha has, in a large part, done that in the last five or ten years. That it's been a bit of a step change because when you go into those underground mines, and Julian, you you hinted at it with you know the fuels from the diesel. Then some of these underground mines, uh, you know, one of our mining engineers was explaining to me that. Uh, we don't actually use more electricity when we switch to a battery electric fleet because whatever electricity we use in the battery electric fleet, we get to cut out of the ventilation costs. And, and so it's, it, it's truly an efficiency. Right? It's, it's not like we're using more electricity. We're just instead of doing all the ventilation, we're using the battery electric. So, um, you know, I, I just think there's a whole lot of technology being used across, you know, the entire industry to kind of, whittle away and, and get the numbers down. I, I think uh, you guys are right on all fronts. I mean, the adoption of new technologies. Uh, we, we, it, when you talk about being sustainable, people think there's more cost, right? And, uh, you know, the underground battery electric vehicle is the classic example. Um, you know, the, the heat loads are reduced, and I'm going to use Borden as an example, the world's first diesel-free hard rock mine with Newmont. Um, 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, 50% heat load reductions. So in fact, they reduced uh, you know, the, uh, their, their energy consumption significantly because of the lower ventilation. And I think you know, similar uh, technologies such as uh, coarse ore flotation, we're, we're gonna see uh, you know, better uh, water usage because on a very large level now, we're seeing technologies uh, in, in filtered tailings uh, a lot of research and development going into reducing the costs of filter tailings, such as the cloth life, which is one of the, the costs with uh, pressure filters, extending uh, cloth life uh, to, to bring those costs down, uh, looking at packing more unit, uh, unit area for filtration into, to, into the same footprint. So you're putting less steel and concrete into building these facilities. So I think we, when we talk about sustainability, uh, we also have to think about, you know, that there's lots of examples that there's cost savings here. So, um, and, and we're going to see more of that as we, as we adopt new technologies that are going to be more cost effective than the old ones. Yeah, and I think, you know, mining is risk capital. There, I, I don't think there's anybody that gets into the mining business thinking that there's no risk, right? You, you, start, you start with a big piece of property and you hope there's some valuable rocks on it or, or under it. Um, so, so this is not, you know, not unusual for them. Um, and, and people are going to have to take some bigger risks. I think most of the clients I've spoken to have 
a pretty good idea how they're going to get to their interim, you know, 2030 or 2040 targets. Um, they've, they've got a pretty good idea of the technologies and what they're going to do. And then as they implement those for 2030, 2040, you know, th there is a little bit of trust that we're going to find the technologies or find the ways to get to zero uh, by by 2050. You know, but but the commitment is there. So so for 2030, I think everybody has pretty good ideas what they need to do, what they want to do, and then you know, it'll get it'll get more uncomfortable as time goes forward as we need to prove out some of these other technologies. A lot of the stuff are moonshots, though, and you know, we congratulate them for being ambitious. But a lot, some of the projects that they're that they're throwing themselves into are very ambitious. Sort of moving to mine trucks powered entirely by hydrogen by 2030 is a tall order, and it's going to be really tough. And they get trying applying a new technology to a whole set of things that haven't been used really in that sense will will be difficult. But you know, when Kennedy said they were going to space, and they went to space. It's a, you have to set ambitious goals if you're gonna get anywhere. There's clearly a lot of ambition for the sector as it enters a sustained period of growth. We've talked strategy and innovation, but how do we combine the two into meaningful action to ensure the industry is a leader in the world's journey to net zero? Yeah, I think if you look at what came out of COP26, an industry like ours is expected to be uh, zero carbon by 2050 and, and even before that. So, um, you know, I think it's entirely possible to to implement the technologies. And we talk about the 80-20 rule, you know, uh, the diesel in the, in the mining fleet. Uh, and renewable energy uh, uh, for the mill is uh, getting you uh, three quarters of the way there. And uh, uh, I think, you know, what the industry really needs to see is collaboration between minor technology provider, you know, the companies that are making these machines and the integrator and companies like us to, to work together and, uh, you know, to, to put some investment in, in human investment into these technologies. Um, Public-private partnerships, where we're, we're you know we're providing scholarships to attract bright minds that need to solve these challenges, and you know if we're going to put a tax on carbon, uh, we, we we should have a, a credit, you know, which is appropriate for adoption of green technologies. So, you know, those are the things we need to see to get rapid adoption of what is necessary in order to meet those targets. And I think uh, if we can get momentum, uh, you know, it's it's twenty fifty is still a a ways away and, and a lot of these technologies are emerging but many of them already exist and uh, uh, you know it's going to come down to capital investments and uh, re re return on investment uh, when it when it looks attractive financially for people to make these changes uh, th then we're going to see it happen more quickly and no one's going to do it at a loss right you, you can push some things so that Maybe they're willing to accept a slightly lower return, but no one's going to do it for a loss. But I would also say that the target, you know, for the perfect green mine has to be well below 2050, because by 2050 we have to have everybody, every facility, at net zero. That, that means we better have, you know, some of the new ones up and operating well before there, so that we we can get the other ones, um, you know, to, to zero. Um, it, it's kind of like you know saying that 100% of new cars will be electric by 2050 doesn't really work. You have to have, 
you know, sales of new cars being totally electric well before then so that the old ones are off the road by 2050 if you were to get all automobiles being being net zero. So um, so we, we got we to gotta come up with a perfect mine. We don't have, you know, 38 years to do 38 years, 28 years. We don't have 28 years to do this. You know, we've got we've got maybe 20 years uh, to get the perfect mine out there. We may say we've got 15 to do the first one, or we've got 10 to do the first one. To actually, so this will be a it's a, a two work fronts. So we've got the existing mines, which we have to do whatever we can to decarbonize them, make them use less water, make them more efficient. And as we do that, all the new mines that we're going to be bringing online to you know, meet these huge demand requirements, every time we do a new mine, it's going to be greener. So yeah, there will come a point where a customer says, well, we, you know, we'll be the, having the diesel trucks and we'll look at him funny and say, you know, no, absolutely not. You know, we, they don't even sell those anymore. Same with uh, you know, as these other technologies. Somebody says, oh, I better, you know, what coal contract can I use for my smelter? And people will say, no, sir, absolutely never, ever. You know, we, we stopped using coal completely five years ago. It's a dead technology. As we bring the series to a close, what is the one thing you would like to leave the listeners with? Julian, I'll put that to you first. Well, it, if you look at the current warming models that are going to affect our, our world and what, what will change. So my, my favorite, most unfortunate example is Holland. Uh, anything above two degrees centigrade change and over 60% of Holland is going to disappear. Um, the sea will rise and they, they're in trouble. Uh, so if you're looking for what sort of, it's the part that doesn't make sense yet, is you would think that the people most interested in saving their homes, saving their communities from clear and undeniable disaster would be pushing mining and supporting mining and 100% behind mining and green technologies and you know, really you know, firing out mining engineers and civil engineers and mechanical engineers so that we could get on with this. But I'm not seeing the urgency. So if there is a call to action here, it's it's for the urgency. And I'd say that the number one call is to to the youth that you know, pe young people need to skill up. They need to get into engineering. They need to get into our industries so that we can so we can do this. We don't have enough people at the moment. It doesn't look like in the short term we're going to be able to find the people we need to do normal mining, the stuff that would, we would have done without the climate crisis. And we need twice as many people, and we all need them to be, you know, skilled up and modern and innovative. And if that's the call to action, is the universities need to, the students need to do their maths, do their physics, do their chemistry, go to university and come and join us. I would say for the industry, um, don't wait for all the answers. There's stuff you can do now. Grab the low-hanging fruit and... Um, 
and make those improvements as soon as you can and trust that there will be lo lo more low hanging fruit coming in the future. And, and we're going to have to, you know, kind of do this stepwise, right? Um, pretty much, you know, we're going to be able to get at least battery electric pickup trucks on surface. And, and there are some underground battery electric vehicles. So let's, you know, let's start by, by getting some adoption of those and then, you know, we'll slowly step through. But if we wait for all the answers to be out there, uh, it won't get done. We have to go. We have to go stepwise now with what we with what we can do. For the public, for those that are skeptical of mining, you know, I, I would say I, I think if you take a really close look at it, I don't think you're going to achieve. I don't think we can achieve our goals of decarbonization without mining. And I would suggest it's far better to get involved uh, constructively rather than being opposed to mining. Um, you know. How can we do it better, right? Don't don't say stop mining because I, I don't think you achieve your decarbonization goals. Um, but let's let's get together with the rest of society and figure out you know how we do this better uh, for everyone. And, and and I kind of feel that's what the investors are doing because they're they're not saying zero, they're not saying stop mining, they're not saying they won't invest in mining. They're saying, um, and it's not just mining that the investors are doing for the net zero reliance. It's it's everything, agriculture, the whole bit. Um, it's it's a matter of saying we're going to support industries that move towards net zero, and we're going to support companies that that move towards net zero. So so they're not saying, hey, we're not going to invest in anything. We're just going to invest in the ones that we think are going in the way we want. So get you know get active, get constructive, and and then come and help us. I agree with many things you said, David. And I think this is a stepwise tran uh, transition. There's uh, some technologies available now uh, that, that can be adopted uh, and, and to, to start, um, you know, for the mining industry itself uh, to decarbonize um, and, uh, and other technologies will, will come about. But we, we really need to uh, understand the metals supply and the metals intensity uh, to, to shift to, to green power, for instance, or, or green public transportation or uh, um, the, the shift is going to require an enormous amount of materials. And we talked yesterday about the timeline into production and, you know, that uh, 12 to 16 years from, from discovery to, to production. And we need a, a lot of materials in, six, in 16 years from now. And that means we have to be drilling. We have to be investing in mining. Um, and we need regulatory, uh, you know, uh, processes that are efficient, um, and uh, you know, supportive of the fact that you know, in order for us to to tackle this global challenge, uh, we we need to be building new mines. That's a really great sentiment to finish the show. Thank you all so much for sharing your valued insight and passion on what is an extremely complex and emotive discussion when it comes to the energy transition. To our listeners, if you would like to connect with today's guests or browse-related insights, please visit woodplc.com/podcast where you can also subscribe to receive our latest podcast. I'd like to say thank you to our listeners for taking the time to join us today. Until next time, please take care.